0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Today, I am so honored to welcome back my favorite crime writer working today, Novelist Megan Abbott is the Edgar-winning author of such acclaimed rich works as Give Me Your Hand, You Will Know Me, The Fever, Dare Me, Queenpin, and more. Her latest novel, The Turnout, was a Today Show read with Jenna book selection, as well as a New York Times bestseller. And most recently, the book was the winner of the LA Times Book Prize for Mystery Suspense, and it was richly deserved. An impressive film buff who is as delightful as she is intelligent. Megan, I had so much fun discussing Judy Holiday and Martin Scorsese with you last year, and I'm so glad you're here to get the band back together once more. So how are you doing and how is spring treating you so far?
1: Good. It's, it's uh, you know, we had talked about Billy Wilder for a long time. Yeah. But, uh, it was such a treat. He is sort of in some ways my all-timer, you know, just in terms of Spanning genre and sensibility, and and genre hopping, and um, just his whole sensibility, which we'll talk about. So, so one of my spring pleasures has been revisiting some of these that I hadn't seen in ten or fifteen years, and. Uh, mm. Um, just, yeah, it's just so great. Um, and I wish more of them, I know we talked about this. I wish more of them were easily streaming. Uh, but you know, yeah. the big, the big wilder ones of course are, but these little, the little gems we'll talk about are a little more catches catch, catch cans. So,
0: Yeah, I know. We need to push for some more releases, some great Criterion editions. It needs to happen. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone listening, please make it happen. But congratulations on all of the well-deserved success with the turnout, which I loved, as you know. I know for writers, it can be scary to anticipate what the response might be to something that you have created. I think last time you joked that you were worried people might find out how weird you were, which is always my fear too. So we have that in common. But it's such a marvelously seductive read. And it's been awesome to see others get caught up in its spell. So I would love to know how the reception to the book in these past few months have been for you. And if there were any highlights in particular you'd like to share.
1: Oh yeah, I forgot that we had last met before it came out. So yeah, it was
0: uh, like right before.
1: Yeah, that's what. It, okay, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, it it you know it was really gratifying, and uh, apparently everyone's just as weird as we are. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was a relief. Um, but uh, it is funny how it was came out in August. Seems like a hundred years ago already. Uh, yeah. Developing it. For TV. And so it sort of transforms as adaptations do, as, um, and so it's sort of, it's sort of um, funny to think about it in its previous form because it's sort of, yeah, take, you know, take out a new shape. Yeah, that's right, and you have always had many experiences with your book. It's your own thing before it comes out, and then it becomes this other thing, and then slowly it starts to become yours again, but infused with what people have said about it. And um, so it is sort of, (laughs) I guess, sometimes writers talk about them as their children, you know, and they can't pick a child and they have complicated relationships with one or the other one, and it is a little bit like that. It's it's never simple,
0: (laughs) no, not at all. Well, I can't wait for the TV adaptation. It's going to be on HBO. Is that correct? If it, if
1: it happens, you know, these oh, okay. are all on, uh, knock, knock. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, um, one of these many things that we're going hopefully see the light of day. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's all, you know, it's so fun to work in that world because of, you know, you know, when you're a movie lover, any, any excuse to to get behind the scenes. Is yes.
0: like that. <laughs> That's so good. And you are a very busy woman, often working on multiple projects at once so is there anything you've been working on whether it's a new book tv series essay all of the above anything else that you would like to give us a sneak preview of
1: well I have been working I have another project that's uh uh should be of interest to people that like crime movies because I know it is people like crime novels but I've been working with the writer George Pelicanos on an adaptation Yeah, of a John D. McDonald novel. And everyone sort of mystery lovers love him for his travis mcgee series which there have been so many attempts to get that made yeah. um as a movie or now a series it was going to be christian bale it was going to i think it goes all the way back to paul newman at one point wow. and it never happened but he also wrote these great standalone novels and so the one we've been adapting for hbo is all uh, called the last one left and it's um it's uh it's based on a true crime uh, very loosely but it's got a great femme fatale and it's very dark. Yeah. Set in Miami in the mid sixties. So. um, That sounds really good. Yes.
0: And I love your sort of, it's like film noir, but femme noir basically. Yes. 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 I love that so much. You make sure that all the female characters are strong and can't wait for that. Yeah. and It's
1: a weird connection. I know I'm just remembering with our Scorsese episode because the producer on it who with George first approached me is Amy Robinson who produced after oh, Hours, I, love I love her yeah way. Maybe it's you, and um, and um, and she also is sort of famous for starring as Teresa in Mean Streets. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, so it's it's sort of a a neat little uh, turn on things, but she's yeah always been a big John D. McDonald fan. So it's it's neat neat it it, neat it was a great excuse to get to meet Amy Robinson. Yeah, I think she follows both of us on
0: Twitter. So you got to actually bring that into the real world. That's so cool.
1: Yes. wild. Wow, she knows everybody, and she's very, very cool. So it's
0: been fun. Oh, that's so good. Well, we have a lot of favorite films and filmmakers in common. Like as I said before, instead of Megan, we did tackle Martin Scorsese, and I've already locked her in to discuss Paul Schrader next. But today we're taking a look at a truly beloved writer-director whose affection for people, especially flawed people, set his work apart. It is Austrian-American filmmaker Billy Wilder with an impressive and enviable career that spanned five decades. Wilder co-wrote and directed such classics as Double Indemnity, The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17, Sabrina, Some Like It Hot, and The Apartment, my goodness. Yet rather than focus on his most famous and beloved works, we decided to approach his filmography with an eye on five films that Megan feels are truly underrated and worthy of another look. We'll go into the films, which include The Major and the Minor, A Foreign Affair, Love in the Afternoon, One, Two, Three, and Kiss Me Stupid in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd love to know more about your own history with Billy Wilder. Any favorites that you might have and why you think his work still enchants us to this day?
1: Yeah, boy, I go way back with Billy Wilder. Yeah, I, you know, he, yeah he just also is one that you can introduce to kids. Um, um I think Some Like It Hot, I'm sure, was the first one I saw as a little kid in the theater because we had a revival theater at that time near where I grew up outside of Detroit. And I was just completely enthralled with it and with him. And I'm sure Sunset Boulevard probably came soon after. And I mean, to this day, I think that... You know, sunset and double indemnity and the apartment. I think these are all actually completely perfect movies. I don't think there's anything yeah. wrong with them. They're they're sort of beginning to end spectacular. And I've just always responded to his sort of love of um interesting, uh, interesting women and yeah, messy and, you know, and everything. Yes. Yeah. And he just has such, and this is really a common to the ones we'll talk about today, but he's just such a, um, sophisticated view of human relations. Like he really thinks that people are terrible and he loves them anyway. And so he's, yes. He just does not judge them. I mean, you have to be. There's certain things that he detests, um, certain kind of bureaucrats and middle management, and mm-hmm. and, and and petty cruelty. And uh, but he but he forgives anyone any indiscretion or um, human the human impulse going awry. And he just I don't know. He just. Um, he he so gets a kick out of the foibles of human nature. So they I mean, just yeah. they're just a great education in someone who I I feel has the view, especially growing up in the Midwest with very specific views about things, is such an open view um, and such a forgiving view of human nature.
0: <laughs> he really does. Yeah, man, woman relationships—they're always complicated and full of you know, double standards or or you say one thing and you do another. People always talk about him being like so cynical. He, You know, he is a cynic, but he's a gentle cynic for all the reasons that you were bringing up because he loves people anyway. It's like he knows that they're going to disappoint you on some level, but you still love them. And yeah, I just I can't say enough good things about him. The writing is so good. He talked about like not wanting his lines to sound too written in various interviews. And I think his collaborators were always really good, but he was able to just uh, take an idea or a thought and just carve it into its essence in a way that I think is really great. Like uh, his characters don't often say they love somebody. They just sort of show it in a different way, like shut up and deal at the end of the apartment. And yeah, I think it's just, such a clever way uh, and very sophisticated of having these complex interactions
1: yeah, I think so much of that comes from who's a protege of Ernst Lubitsch, and yeah. you see so much of that. He was, was actually I think less cynical uh, and a little more romantic, uh, but he, you know, he wrote *Ninotchka* and *Bluebeard* yeah. and Zane *White*. Right? He wrote a few of those, and um, and he always talked. You were talking about like you know these scenes not being about the thing they're about, and I think that's something you know part of the the part of the Lubitsch touch that he mm-hmm. you know sort of coming in the back door on things and, uh, and he just always finding I had read the Charles Brackett, his first of the of two great writing partners, uh, yes. Charles Brackett and, I A L Diamond, and also of course Raymond Chandler, a double, yeah, w- double, <laughs> yeah. But they, um, you know, they would have these endless meetings with Lewitch, like trying to make how can we make this scene funnier and and mm-hmm. or you know like how do how can we get the story point across without exposition? How can we, um, you know, how can it? It was all, especially how can these two that are going to fall in love meet each other in a way we don't expect? And like Bluebeard's eighth wife, where I think Gary Cooper is buying once only once to only buy a pajama top <laughs> Ooh, the pajama bottoms yes. yeah yeah so it's sort of you know it's just it's so delicious and and i do think too for both lubich and and wilder being expats from you know mm-hmm. really you know pr- like bubbling um war in europe had a very different vantage point on America that was sort of mm-hmm. critical for all that and, and did have a more cosmopolitan view of, you know, this have American puritanism was not in them at all. And so no. I think they're, they're fascinated by Americans, particularly about American hucksterism and, and, and attitude, but they, it's all sort of modulated by this sort of impatience with how bourgeois Americans are. Oh yeah, exactly. And he was all about speed.
0: I heard that even chess, like he, he was really good at chess, but he couldn't stand because the pace was so slow. He liked bridge. They said that he got impatient at parties if you needed to finish your sentence and it wasn't fast enough because he would want to rewrite it or finish it for you. And just, you read all that stuff about him, always needing to debate every line of dialogue with his uh, co-writers. I, A.L. Diamond, he had more of a just professional dynamic with. He was much closer personally with Charles Brackett. But I read that they didn't really fight fight. But he said if Diamond got mad, he would just go to the library, like the Beverly Hills Library, and he knew, like, uh-oh, you know, something happened, and then he would come back and they would be fine. But, yeah, just the writing is so, so good.
1: Yeah, and just such a um, yeah. He, I could just. Uh, he's one of the filmmakers I most wish I could have a conversation with because he's just seems. I mean, one of my favorite movie books is the Cameron Crowe conversations with Billy Wilder. Yeah, which so is so good. If people don't have it; they need to get it immediately. I believe you have to get a used copy of this, which is outrageous to me. Yeah. Uh, but it's one of the great film books because Cameron Crowe gets him. If Cameron Crowe has, has given us anything, um, he's given us that and he's given us a few things. But I mean, yeah. that to me in terms of film history um, is just, you know, because he does get him to go through basically every movie at, you know, over these series of years, they, these interviews together. And it's I know. It's just- it's just delicious and he's so funny and he's so um difficult in his way. he really
0: is he's cantankerous (laughs) with him and it's really funny it's like Hitchcock Truffaut basically you're really like these are great filmmakers but they also had a scholarship for film of course and uh, I mean both Truffaut and Crow started out in journalism and so yeah so it's really I mean Peter Bogdanovich I love his journalism uh too and the books that he did so it's vital I think um the sense of history and reverence for it and I really get a kick out of the fact that Wilder I found this like recently I was talking to Farron Smith Nemi about it on Twitter because Wilder is such an unreliable source like yeah. he's constantly changing his story there. I love how at the beginning of, of conversations with Wilder, he's like, yeah, Cary Grant's one of my best friends. And then like three pages later, Crow kind of goes, so Cary Grant was a good friend. Well, we we moved in the same circles. So it like changes a little bit. And yeah. then Crow yeah. pushes back on him a, like a little bit with something specific later on with Marilyn Monroe and a line
1: I was delivery. Say, that's the one I remember. because. Yes. And it like shocked him, yeah. they really like to quote him saying negative things about Marilyn Monroe like well you're just looking at some of the interviews because he like his you know he had some you know it was a very frustrating experience yeah. you know shooting you know for she had a lot of personal issues going at the time of some like a hot and had, was coming up right was pregnant or coming off a miscarriage and later I think he really softened with her he tried to get her for kissing Me Stupid which we'll talk about yeah. so so it's sort of you know you have to <laughs> you have to you it with a grain
0: of <laughs> salt yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah 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 and I got a kick out of that because it's like the one part of the book where Cameron Crowe kind of pushes back a little bit yeah. like questions like yeah. well her back's to the camera did you need to shoot that many? and it was like right. oh and so it took Wilder a moment and then he thought oh so I love that <laughs> yeah it's just such a great book full of so many stories and anecdotes about his own life as well which I find so fascinating sometimes he doesn't want to share things i mean you know i understand that of course like crow asks him the most personal questions but yeah i love it i know i can't believe that you do have to find a used copy so anyone listening make sure you do but we should probably move into her so I don't keep Megan all day. But well, there's hoping you look younger, and then there's hoping you look 12. And as it turns out, 12 is exactly how old Ginger Rogers, who was then age 30, was going for in Billy Wilder's American directorial debut, The Major and the Minor, from 1942. Tired of being propositioned in one dead-end job after another times 25, Rogers decides that she's had enough of New York City, but must lose her makeup, braid her hair and adjust her clothes to try to pass herself off as 12 because she's unable to afford the full price for a train ticket back home to Iowa. Sliding into Ray Milan's private sleeper car when the conductor and others catch on to her act. Rogers gets more than she bargained for when she begins to fall for the handsome major and is brought home with him to stay with his fiance on the campus of a military academy when they get stranded in Indiana during a storm. A daring and provocative, yet very, very funny, very, very strange romantic comedy. I was so glad that you chose this one because it had been a while. So let's kick things off. What are your thoughts on the major and the minor?
1: Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love this movie so much. I can't believe people don't talk about it in the pantheon of great screwball comedies. Yeah it's you know it's wilder's directorial debut right he's coming off all these screenplay successes mm-hmm. with bracket and um ball of fire and then that's kind oh, of, you know, one yeah. of my faves yeah i yeah. like ball of fire yeah, yeah. Incredible and he wanted to direct and this this and he I believe that Ginger Rogers used to not at her age not at age 30, but uh did you know with her mother pretend to you know did this trick yes. and Where premise came from and Ginger Rogers, you know, we so love her for the Rogers and the Stare movies, but she is great in romantic in like straight romantic. She is. I
0: one of my favorites, yeah, Vivacious Lady, Bachelor Mother, yes. all of these
1: yes and she's just delicious in this and this is a movie that so skates on the edge of being dirty it <laughs> you Really, does. Yes. you can't believe they're getting away with the premise and and of course the one of the ways they get away with it is that she's pretending <laughs> to be 12 actively and is the one who um, is you know ha- very attracted to Ravel Ann who yes. really, she's 12 and is being appropriately a paternal and uh, they have all these sort of of um, strangely ironic scenes on the train. <laughs> yeah, like overnight? You're like, what are we watching? Yeah, appropriate. But, for, but it's not. And it just, like, they had, you know, Wilder has so much fun with it. And she is so. She is having so much fun. You can just see Rogers enjoying it, and, and there's—I mean, there's so many great moments. But always one of my favorites is when she arrives at the military academy, still in this ruse, because now she likes him, and uh, um, and she meets his fiance's sister, who he is twelve, <laughs> and, and she's—and the twelve-year-old sister is the only one who immediately said "It says." You can bluff grownups, but you can't bluff me. You are not twelve, lady. I <laughs> so, know it's so good. It's so I think that's such a good moment. It's like a great example. This is actually what a real twelve-year-old is like. Because this twelve-year-old Lucy, is her name, is is so is so sophisticated. Um, actually, sort of beyond her years, and it's so funny how then they become. Uh, this is not a spoiler because I mean, so many things happen in this movie, but they sort of become allies in a certain way, and uh, so there's just so many great turns in it and there's a great dance sequence you do get a little ginger rogers dance sequence Mm -hmm. that's is. Um, and it's just sort of it's just sort of you feel like it's wild they're just packing everything in there it's just wall to wall humor and wit and uh, Robert Benchley the great Robert Benchley has a great part in it as uh, yeah. he um, is a scalp massage client of uh, Rogers at the beginning and and um, this is this is the movie uh, where Benchley I think is the first one where he says uh, would, would you like to get out of that wet coat and into a dry martini which, such a good line yeah, yeah which apparently Wilder claimed he didn't write but that he had heard Benchley say it but I did then read that Benchley apparently had stolen it from a Charles Butterworth movie so I took oh, TBD wow. but they all knew a good line when they heard it but uh um there's just like everybody in it is is delicious and um when I was you know, sort of thinking about it again, I went back, I don't know if you, this is kind of obscure, but have you read Charles Brackett's diaries? They were published. No. Okay. That's, they just came out like maybe two years ago it's an academic press. Yeah. But they're his studio diaries and they are so much fun to read. There's so much about what it was like to work in the studio at that time and how wild the years it has the years they work together. And then, and then a bit afterward, but um about meeting with you know doing these story meetings and it's sort of delicious but I went and looked there's this is a great sample passage that I if you don't mind I'll read it out loud oh, go for it yeah it gives a taste of how fun they are because Brackett is just as witty as Billy Wilder and he yeah. Brackett is watching his friend try to direct this thing and having to deal with things he did, they don't have to deal with this as screenwriters. So this is from April 28th. So I guess April 28th of 42. Okay. I was I was working at RKO when a telephone call from Arthur, the producer, uh, warned me of trouble on the set. I raced over to find Billy sweating in anguish, ginger, a marron glace of Kristen's scientific hurt sweetness. The scene which she expected to be radically rewritten had not been rewritten. She just couldn't play it. She she didn't understand it. What was she to do? Would Billy act it out for her? Robert Benchley, to whom the scene belonged, was beaming and genial, and not one shot had been taken. Arthur mm-hmm. was Herb is always in a crisis, handling the irritating little bitch beautifully. <laughs> uh, took Billy out and gave him a double Bacardi. Nevertheless, the cameras didn't turn until 4:30 in the afternoon. <laughs> so that is it's funny. Uh, a lot of, um, and this is sort of true with all of these movies. Is while we're having to deal with stars and ego and sensitivity, at both male and female, and and um, it's such a great insider's view to to all of this and and. How much was riding on it for Wilder, you know, yeah. he to direct and um, and he did. It did have a great success with major and the minor, um, thankfully. But um, it's just um, it, it is it's a moron glace in and of itself. It's just a delicious movie.
0: It really is. And you do see him trying to pack everything that he has into this movie. Um, you know, he, this is the first of many that he really wanted Cary Grant to be the lead. I read that he actually offered Ray Moland the part at a stoplight. Like he just, they happened to be at the same stoplight and he shouted out, like, why don't you do it? And, uh, so he got him a Ginger Rogers. This was fresh off of Kitty Foil. So she had won the Oscar. She had director approval at the time. And so people were kind of working on her, including Arthur as a producer. And so they all met, at a restaurant. And she said over the course of the evening, she just knew like in her gut that he was going to go places. And he had such a command of story. And she was also saying how charming he was, which yeah. there are stories about him possibly being a little bit of a gigolo, a dance instructor back in Austria. And she said, you know, he knew how to flatter and how to pay attention to women. And so she kind of got that whole treatment that night. And just felt that he was right for it, especially when he said, you know, let's put your mom in the movie because he knew that they were close and she told him yeah, I tried to, uh, or I used to actually kind of pretend I was underage. I don't think she had done it in years, but uh, not at age 30, of course, but she had done that um, in years past with her mom. And he said, let's put you both in the film. And so I think that charmed her as well. I read that he really learned a lot about filmmaking from the editor on this one. And he said more than even the cameraman uh, and it has an incredible cameraman, same cinematographer as "Hold Back the Dawn." Was it Tovar? I'm blanking on the name. Or, but
1: yeah, I had heard that too
0: about Tovar. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said even more than Tovar, he learned from the editor on how to kind of cut in camera and figure out exactly what he needed so it would come in under budget and there wouldn't be a lot to mess with in the editing room. There's that <laughs> yeah. famous line. Yes, that's
1: you know, always trick right that yeah because then they, they can't they can't change it and it's the one thing you know it's one yeah. of the things that um you know the sort of you know orson welles or john houston you know they uh, later you know john houston figured it out too but once yep. he got them, taken away from him but it, it was so much like don't give them anything else to work with <laughs> oh, yeah. no coverage this is what you get
0: <laughs> yeah i just did an episode on leo mccary and i guess he did the same thing Billy Wilder had that famous quote about, you know, the only thing on the editing room floor was like cigarette butts, gum wrappers, and tears. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. He had a wittier way of saying it's it.
1: Very yes.
0: <laughs> yes, and I just thought that was really clever. And yeah, knowing exactly what he wanted and knowing his story so well that even though, some, you know, they would start shooting before they were finished with the script and they would keep working on it, but he knew where it was going at all times and what they needed and what it looked like in his head. And you can tell right away in this film.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's learning so much. There's leaps and bounds with every one of his movies and you, and you could feel it.
0: Yeah. Well, playing with our chronology a bit because in a way our next two films, though made 13 years apart, seem To go together, we have A Foreign Affair from 1948 and One, Two, Three from 1961, two films set in post-World War II Berlin, and the first, A Foreign Affair, written by Wilder, Charles Brackett, and Richard L. Breen, based on David Shaw's story that was adapted by Robert Harari. A United States Army captain, played by John Lund, finds himself torn between a nightclub singer and ex-Nazi mistress, Marlena Dietrich, and the, the prim Iowa congresswoman played by Jean Arthur, who is investigating her. More of a drama with moments of humor, at least comparatively with our next one. The approach is flipped to wildly frenetic effect in One, Two, Three, which written by Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond is based on a Hungarian one-act play and partly contains plot elements borrowed from Ninochka, which was co-written by Wilder in 1939 We're set in West Berlin at the height of the Cold War this ingeniously freewheeling and very fast-paced screwball style farce finds James Cagney talking a mile a minute as a top-ranking Coca-Cola executive who's put in charge of his boss's visiting 17-year-old daughter after discovering that she's married a staunch communist from East Berlin Cagney goes into hyperdrive, trying to save face and salvage the situation before his boss's impending arrival, a film I love more each time I watch it. I found these two Berlin set movies paired intriguingly well as a double feature. So thought it would be a great way to dive in. But I would love to hear your take on both of them.
1: Yeah, there, you know, it is so wild because he's he's they're both Berlin at like very pivotal points in German history. And so you have, he was, he was shooting that, um, in Berlin, like literally right after the war, you actually, mm-hmm. see it when you see that movie, the footage of bom- bombed out buildings yes. everywhere. It's just they, I mean, it was so fast that they were in there that it is really kind of a timepiece in that way. And he's, you know, and, and as an Austrian, I think these two views of Germany are sort of, you know, they're obviously very personal to him in, in mm-hmm. very complicated ways because they're both stories of Americans coming in and, and not really and just imposing they're their yes. democracy <laughs> and uh and puritanism and all this onto onto uh a country you know very much in transition and chaos and and quite vulnerable um in many ways and um so they're they're fasting but they are they are very different i mean we an affair uh you're right it's more dramatic than one two three but it's it should be a drama if you describe the plot but it's so it's um he doesn't he doesn't shoot it as a as a drama it's
0: It's,
1: um, very um (laughs) much a comedy and very much about uh (laughs) I mean, sometimes I can't believe this movie got made because it was still in propaganda mode, really. Yes. But he's um, It's very much about Americans both trying to help the Germans, but also completely taking advantage mm-hmm. of the Germans, um, who um, and 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 to a certain extent, vice versa, of course. But this is a sort of black market Berlin right after the war. Um, you know, poverty and loss and. Just has two of the great female um, actors of the century in Gina yes. and Marlena Dietrich, and they both are, um, you know, just in top form here. And, and John Lund, who I think is very good, but he's playing the part that William Holden definitely would have played if this movie had been made yes. two years later. I, mean, I know he, you know, he always wanted Cary Grant for these parts, but this is such a William Holden part because, is. You know, yeah. he, he plays Pringle, who's this. Um, um, so you know, sort of, I forget what his um uh, rank is, but like mm-hmm. a sergeant maybe, um, but helping o- oversee the uh, recovery. Um and uh he's he's just uh um both, you know, very winning and very cynical and very charming and um, um just sort of self-hating a little bit self-hating and yes. all the that that William Holden would, would play once um, Wilder started working with him um, but it's sort of a triangle between them and it's um, I just love how what number one I love how Gene Arthur and Marlene Diedrich are both at least 10 years older than Don Lund and no one talks about it once
0: it's so good yeah <laughs> like, it's that like that never the thing nobody now. yes
1: yeah, you know, and there, you know, he, you know, is having, it gets involved with both of them, and um, it's just delicious again. And mm-hmm. there's so much. It's another another very sexy movie because Gene Arthur plays this congresswoman, very very Republican, and is it Kansas or Missouri where she's from? I Iowa, yeah, Iowa. Okay, yeah. Um, Midwest, I, same thing. Yes, yes, as a Midwesterner, I yeah, that's, yeah, I'm Midwestern. <laughs> so yes. so so, um, but she's, you know, comes in there very, um, you know, stiff, stiff upper lip and, you know, by the book and, and just becomes enthralled um, with Don Lund and, and with German, like good German nightlife and this sort of sexy, weird energy I going
0: know. on. She <laughs> finds her sexuality and as a woman. he was always really good at writing seduction scenes one of my favorites is in the file room when he's like trying to yeah trying to like stall her and she keeps opening the drawers and and he's like kind of you know a predator and a prey and like closing the door to get closer to her and it's just such a sexy scene and really really well played yeah yeah
1: it's like you don't even like I mean Jean Arthur was so good at this she's um she's so good at this in the more the merrier too as as a woman who's completely undone by her desire in a moment and uh Mm -hmm. because we already sort of see it because she has a speech a little earlier about her affair or her love affair with the Southern a Democrat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, this, it's this completely like Blanche Duval speech she gives about. She says, I loved him insanely. I love the Southern <laughs> syrup in his voice, his mint julep manners. And she talks about his thick eyelashes and, and she's just so like, such you a know,
0: romantic so, at heart. Yeah.
1: But, well, I don't even think it's romantic exactly, but I think it's so well think,
0: uh, her desire, yes. I should say. Uh, yes, yes. yes, yes.
1: I mean yeah, I think it's in part romantic, but I think it's so erotic. Like she's yes. so because there's something illicit because he's a demon you know, and, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> and, and and Berlin feels like an illicit place. And Marlena DJ, of course, represents everything illicit who mm-hmm. for her sex has to be a transaction because she needs yep. to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And And for Dietrich, who is such a hero in World War II, you know, Mm -hmm. basically devoted the entire war to working for the cause and anti-fascism and just, just really um in fact I had read that she had been hesitant to play the part because
0: that's of, what I read he had yeah. to go see her in Paris and talk to her and she had so many questions and pushback. back and at the end of the day he said nobody should play it but you and yes agreed. right
1: she didn't want to play when they even had the hint of a collaborator yeah. Lama, and um that's why she's perfect for it exactly and yeah they did see the one thing in this that bracket Uh, Because they were still working together, here hated was there is a scene when she's brushing her teeth. One of the moments I love. I mean, oh yeah, uh, yeah. was great at earthy stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, and she's brushing her teeth and she spits the toothpaste out at at John Lund, and it's great. And hated that something (laughs) unseemly would occur, which (laughs) tells you that that was probably it was the it was the very end of their partnership, and maybe they were going in different directions. But yeah. Yeah, I just don't know why I I think in terms of its reception, I know it was sort of middling and it might have just been too soon for people to sort of see such a, a complicated view of our, our, our role in the war and our relationship to Germany and Germany's relationship to itself. And it might have been a little, a little too soon.
0: I think so. Yeah, I read that he really, though. I mean, he had his own views, as we pointed out, you know, being Austrian, but he did talk to a lot of XGIs when he went over there. He had help from the US government, but then he was also trying to work with the German film industry. So he was kind of playing sort of the mediator or working with them to try to help bolster the film um, economy over there, but also work with uh, the American government. And it was, you know, so soon after and the bombed out buildings, it's shocking when the movie first opens and you see that. And he said, you know, talking to people, Americans too, about what they had done in the war, but also especially people in Berlin. uh, He wanted to put the, you know, it is a funny movie, there's a lot going on, but he did want to put the darkness in there. And I think, you know, it is a really fine line he has to walk. And I think he does it very well. I know Cameron Crowe in the book said he thinks this might be his most personal movie, which is interesting. And, you know, watching it again with some of the biographical details in mind, I think there might be something to that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think so too, because I think it reflects his, he, he, you know, he, he was someone who lost family members and, you know, he, but he has a really uh, rich, generous, complicated view of everybody involved that, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's not too hard on anybody. He's not too soft on anybody. And, and and he i mean he's only people he, that Wilder's ever hard on are people who think things are simple and he you know and that, that's a
0: good good point megan yeah
1: and i think that folds over to, to one two three which is definitely a lighter um uh, yes. lighter fare, but i think there too it's um it, it's what enables him in that case to sort of spin it up into this um you know in some ways it's a um it's a little bit of a trick because it's, it's a quite subversive movie, but it's it's, it's so fast and frenetic and insane. And and like a lot of sixties comedies that it just feels like it's the top of a head is going to blow off. It's moving so fast. Um, But I think that's why he gets away with this sort of wild cold war uh, um, critique and, and sort of capitalism critique and sort of a a mockery again of, American sexual puritanism and Mm -hmm. uh, hypocrisy and, and yeah. And, and, and so I think it's such an interesting, um, you know, 15 years or whatever year, how many years apart, less than 15 years apart. Um,
0: 13, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. So I, it's just one of those, um, that I think is, um, People still don't talk about this one enough at all, I think. Given- yeah,
0: that was what I tweeted the other day. I'm like, I don't know why we're not talking about this movie all the time. Because when you watch it, that's all you want to do is talk about just how great it is. Um, I read Wilder was saying he didn't really even consider it to be super funny. It's just the speed made it funny. And, you know, Cagney had I can't even imagine how hard this was to do for Cagney. And it did drive him out of film yeah. for like 20 years until yes. Ragtime. time. Uh, he said, yeah, he's that, yeah, <laughs> yes, it was so much work. And I know they, they kind of sparred a little bit and um, he was saying, you know, I was looking at some of my colleagues from years past going on yacht trips and stuff like that. Here I am having to memorize like pages to do. And uh, so it was. It was a lot of work, but I love the cast. I mean, he's amazing in it, but they're all so good. I mean, it is kind of you're watching it. And I did read like a review at the time called it 50% Cagney, but it seems like it's 75 at least percent Cagney. But the rest of the cast is so good. I know he. In his career, like, the one actor he ever really talked bad about in public was the German um, actor from Magnificent Seven who co-stars with him. I'm blanking on his name, of course.
1: Horst Buchholz, if I mispronounce that. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Horst. Yeah. Because he thought Horst was always trying to steal his scenes, which I found really funny because that was the the thing between steve mcqueen and yul brenner on magnificent seven was the stealing the scenes like he kept playing with his hat while i was talking and like stealing focus and so i think it maybe carried over for horse right after that of i'm going to steal some scenes from cagney
1: but and also an acting a different acting tradition was yeah. coming in too and i think there is a little bit of that uh mm-hmm. brando effect <laughs> even though it's not the right movie for horse to be doing it in but there's a lot of like. There's a lot of physical business. Um, yeah. Um, guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Cagney, like it's such a tour de force. It, like I can't believe how. I mean, the scene where he is. Um, just sort of fitting out the wardrobe like things that that he needs to buy for a horse to pose as as a friendly capitalist um, (laughs) uh, and he just describes like you know this you know everything from the shirt size to the tailoring and the kind of you know and everything
0: amount of numbers like wow
1: yes just and, and i guess i had read that you know who knows how much this is apocryphal but that was the speech that that broke right over the edge yeah and i as a writer i so appreciate that wilder like he was flipping these two words and wilder just wouldn't let him do it and i i so (laughs) i've been on that end of it like there's a rhythm to it that he wants to hear and it is the music is such a big part of it too, and I do think he was doing it to. Which I guess the play it was it was it was based on a musical. So the even though it's not oh, a musical, I didn't know that. I, I, I believe did. that's true. Um, oh, one of its inspirations was okay. a musical, but the music's been taken out. out but it, the score, obviously, and the songs are so critical to mm-hmm. it. Um, um that you just sort of feel uh that he's timing the all of those speeches to to that music somehow is it because it's even on the first page of the script suggested speed 110 miles an hour on the curves 140 miles an hour on the straightaways. so wanted it to be this sort of boom 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 boom
0: yeah it's just incredible I I can't imagine. And
1: uh, so, oh, that was the other time. Sorry, there's so much no, about go for the, it. the, the it's also and this is true in the other two movies we've already talked about, but it's also so so many pop culture references to the era, and this it's even more like there's just a lot, um, a lot um, of
0: topical <laughs> stuff.
1: Yeah. 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 And inside jokes that um or you know inside how you know that, that movie lovers would get. But I mean I think that there's some of that in the major and the minor and in foreign affair, but here you really have a lot a lot of that. Um and and that makes it also feel really sort of delicious because you're kind of trying to decode some of them or try to catch them all because Cagney does that famous um mother of mercies this is the end of speech which is famous yeah. for little caesar the other big gangster movie yeah
0: edward g robinson yeah there's yeah. a lot of um inside jokes like in major and the minor of course he makes a dig at charles Boyer, who's mad yes. about <laughs> right. hold back the dawn and then in this one you have like there's a reference to the grapefruit with Public Enemy, and then of course the Yankee Doodle uh, cuckoo yeah, clock in yeah. the in the office. So there is some of that, but yeah, it's just such a fun movie. And I also love that some of his own pet peeves come out. He is someone who famously hated rock and roll music, and so I love that during the torture scene, it's um, itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow <laughs> polka dot yeah. bikini, like completely yeah. undoes this guy. And I was going to know ask
1: you, you that, like. like- roll though to give him credit, (laughs) what? Yeah, I don't know if we can call it rock and roll though to give him credit. I guess yeah, just (laughs)
0: bubblegum pop maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I should say he doesn't. He didn't really like popular music, but no, well, yeah,
1: he was a classicist. I think that's quite true. He
0: he was, and I was going to ask you if, if somebody really wanted to get your goat, like what song would completely send you over the edge? Like I thought about it for me it'd be that escape Pina Colada song. I think I would tell <laughs> you everything in two seconds, but like yeah. I was wondering, what would it be? That's
1: a great question. <laughs> I, I, oh, that's tough. I mean, yeah. as a Gen Xer, <laughs> I think it might be some boy band song. I mean, I know there's like a weird of all of them now, but I hated them so much as a (laughs) a grunge-loving 18 or 19. Like, Mm -hmm. bye-bye, baby, or like any of them. Yeah, the
0: NSYNC. I never had any of those. I was more into the grunge, yeah.
1: I was just not into that. And I had to, I remember working at Little Little Caesar's Pizza, speaking of Little Caesar. Um, Oh, no, so you would have been hearing it all the time. Yeah, I had a manager, one manager. Most of the managers liked heavy metal, and that was fine but uh <laughs> um, one that liked um real, real that era when is the early 90s like real pop um and it just was unbearable to me. <laughs> So, we're
0: gotcha. yes yeah. Yeah. yeah the modern equivalent of itsy bitsy teeny weeny yes that's
1: right that's right yeah.
0: that's what we're see there was a through line there yes. yeah yes. Yes, no. Well, our next film is definitely my favorite selection from our underrated list. In fact, it's my current Twitter header photo and has been for years. I'm talking about Billy Wilder's first movie that he wrote with key collaborator. Izzy, or I-A-L Diamond, in the form of 1957's Parisian romance, Love in the Afternoon. Audrey Hepburn stars as the 20-something daughter of Maurice Chevalier's private detective who finds herself falling for the Older notorious playboy played by Gary Cooper, who seems to pop up in nearly every infidelity case Chevalier is hired to check out a box office disappointment upon its release. with a great deal of criticism aimed at the age difference between Hepburn and Cooper. I still love this one, and I think it features some of my favorite moments in Wilder. So I look forward to knowing your take. Talk to me about love in the afternoon.
1: Yes, I'm so glad you love it too. Oh, I, I adore it, yeah. I don't understand why this isn't. I mean, to me, and I love Sabrina, but to me, this is not some I ways prefer
0: this one, mean, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, and I think it for just all the reasons that you're sort of teasing out there. But it's so funny. We, we everyone is very sensitive right now about age differences, and I um, yeah. and I just want them to all watch this because um, yeah. she, you know, Audrey Hepburn's character, who is, you know, first of all, I'm a little puzzled by the fact that Cooper got so much heat for that, given other movies that were. I mean, it's. I sort
0: know of, it's not like Fred Astaire being partnered I, with. I her. know yeah. j-
1: Right, funny faces right around here and yeah. that's uh, I do think that the uh, to Audrey Hepburn in particular I guess because she has this gammon quality so she seems she, I mean she definitely could have passed for 12 on the yes. train uh, but she is so in control of this love affair and she so knows what she wants and she so seeks him out and really you know plays this femme fatale to and and and. on you know yeah. <laughs> She's—I mean, anybody that would think that this was any predatory. Related, i mean, she's the predator here in, in the best way, and um, she's just great, and he is just delicious. And it was another Cary Grant, right? They wanted yeah. Cary Grant part, which, which I think he was sensitive about the age difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Grant,
0: right? a couple of years before they made charade together, but yeah, Cary Grant was. Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess
1: in this case because I mean, I know that Cary Grant has always said and he's right that he always needed to play the the non-active one and like he had to be seduced because in some ways he's sort of knowing that he's so good looking and so mm-hmm. like so you know, suave. A, yeah 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 and so I think this probably it was making him nervous in some way but I think mm-hmm. Gary Cooper is wonderful in it and I and I'm so sorry I know he loved doing it and the reception really hurt his feelings um but I think he's so wonderful their chemistry is so great mm-hmm. uh, and Marie Chevalier as her father I mean to me he's one of the great so Father delightful and relationships in cinema i mean just um the ending i always remembered that maybe either this isn't a spoiler i'm not gonna say what the ending is but the ending made me burst into tears the first time i yes. saw it oh,
0: yeah yes. yes. same it still kind of gets me a little misty just it's how much he movie. loves he's not being judgmental which would be really easy in an american movie he would have like you know ripped the door down and like yelled at her but Um, Yeah, and I love it for all those reasons you brought up. Like, she is somebody who is, she's the virgin. And Billy Wilder said maybe part of the age thing is because she's playing so virginal. Like, he thought even more than Sabrina. Um, it's just more open here that she is completely, you know, next to the Cooper persona, like just so innocent. But she's the one who is the seducer. And she takes this active heroic role of I'm going to save his life. And I'm going to get in there. And oh, my God, he's so good looking. And I want this guy. And she goes right after it. I love it so much. So I don't really see um, some of the criticism of him it's, being the predator, like, no, yeah.
1: It it's so funny because that virginal thing that's sort of just a leftover code thing because they had yeah. to, they had to. Uh, Create the possibility that they could actually not be having sex during these (laughs)
0: investigation.
1: But it's so clear that they are. And so, but by the same logic, they had to suggest that Audrey Hepburn's character was a virgin. But I mean, she's a great, like, freaking weirdo in the best way of female characters. She really is. She's in the files. I mean, she could, in another world, she's a Paul Schrader character. You know, she's Mm -hmm. like, she sees him, she wants him, she's going to do anything to get him. I think maybe that's what made people so uncomfortable and it got weirdly morphed into this this other thing because yeah. seeing a woman go especially I mean in some ways things had gotten more puritanical in the 50s than in 10 years before and yeah. sort of women expressing open desire was was very taboo in the in so for so much of the 50s so I wonder if that's part of it because I mean she she's great I want everyone Troubled by the age difference in licorice pizza? To take a look at this, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not that simple. You have to like you know, it's case by case basis. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can't just have one view of like, well, no age difference ever. It's like watch the people, watch the you know, life is complicated. There's gray area, and yeah, I think you brought up a really good point in the 40s. Maybe, you know, like a league of their own of it all, like women were getting a little more independence, working in factories. And during the war, we were more in the femme fatale era. And then in the 50s, it's man in the gray flannel suit and the suburbia and kind of putting women back in these boxes. So maybe it was just kind of bold and so European in its view. But I know she loved working with Gary Cooper in her memoir. She was very kind of shy about... um, Talking about some of her relationships or interactions with her co stars She's very diplomatic. But in her memoir, I remember or one of the books, she talked about loving kissing Gary Cooper oh, like it was oh. Gary Cooper. You can
1: tell. Yes. You can tell. It's yeah. this scene where they're on the floor together that sort of a lot of the yes. you know, there's famous sort of photos of that, but it's mm. like you can feel the, you know, you can <laughs> her tingling and it being so close to him. And I'm sure. You know, in that case, the age difference, like it feeds into the story because I'm sure he was a big movie, you know, someone that she'd seen as a, as a kid in the movie. Oh, so yeah. like she often had to with her, you know, with these men that she was, um, cast opposite. Um, but it just seems people should, I mean, it's streaming act. This one is streaming. Yeah. Act. I saw an HBO max and it's often, it pops up on TCM all the time. So I so recommend people to see it for, <laughs> a, for a romantic and delicious and very, very funny but very moving movie that deserves um also the music is so beautiful there's all
0: that oh yes I know and I love the the gypsies that follow them around like yeah. uh, Cameron Crowe wrote so beautifully about the scene that's actually my favorite scene as well which is Gary Cooper playing the, the recording of her laundry list of lovers that she made up oh, from yeah. the file and like he starts out and he's amused and then by the end he's like jealous and he realizes he's in love just listening to it and watching the bar cart go back and forth i mean Krill wrote about it just so beautifully but uh, it is it's one of the great again he isn't somebody as a filmmaker we pointed out who has characters declare that they love somebody you see it in moments like that yes.
1: That's right. I mean, that's always what good writing really is, yeah. right? You and it's and again that Lubitsch touch there. I think that's such a Lubitsch was so much with music, with romance, and you know, and and you know, sexual history and all mm-hmm. of that. You Sort of see it, but definitely with Wilder's own touch because I do think there's a. Uh, Something a little a little um uh, more having fun with the lurid that Wilder uh, enjoys that that I enjoy as well. Yes. So,
0: which yeah. probably
1: brings us to the, the next movie. I Perfect. Guess. Yeah. 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 Our
0: final film was such a scandalous one when it was released that the Catholic Legion of Decency condemned it. It was something that hadn't happened to an American movie since eight years before with Baby Doll. Based on an Italian play called The Dazzling Hour, which had inspired an Italian movie starring Gina Lola Brigida in 1952, this American incarnation from Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond was released as Kiss Me Stupid in 1964. Featuring Dean Martin playing a thinly disguised self-parody version of himself as Dino, the movie finds the beloved singer and entertainer passing through Climax, Nevada, who gets (laughs) trapped there by two scheming aspiring songwriters who sabotage his car and then try to lure him to making one of their songs his next big hit. Knowing Dino's legendary appetite for women, the married Ray Walston and his mechanic and partner in music hire Kim Novak's prostitute, Polly the Pistol, to pretend to be Walston's wife that Dino wants to seduce. A film that's very frank about its bed or partner swapping setup. And yet it's one that surprisingly, I think, and despite how very, very funny it is, I do believe its heart is in the right place and believe it's also a truly underrated comedy. So have you always been a fan of Kiss Me
1: Stupid? Yeah, so I came to it, I think I saw it for the first time maybe 15 years ago, but like well after I'd Same. seen most yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, and it just... Uh um it had this reputation and um that was it just everyone involved it suffered in some way from it and it seems it's crazy to me now but but it is it, it is in, in the context of what 1964 it is you know it is subversive in so many ways because it does present in some ways uh swapping as the key key to <laughs> like, it could be a key for many a relationship to uh to thrive. So it's very feels very prescient for our current moment of uh more um sexual sophistication, let's just say. It's just mm-hmm. so um it's just so and you know I had until preparing for this and reading I hadn't realized it had been based on this Italian play, but it makes so much sense because it does remind me a lot of Italian comedies. I was Mm -mm. Thinking of Red Rocket, which is, you know, the recent movie that... um, That was a good one. Yeah, Yeah. it was also sort of based on Italian comedies. I think in that case more of the 70s, but there is this sort of... You know, earthier view of 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 human relationships that you know, feels infused. And I know Diamond talked about is, and this is maybe even more to the point. They thought they were doing like a restoration comedy, and the way that those were very sexually sophisticated. Oh, that's yeah. a
0: good approach. Yeah. I can see that when you bring it up.
1: Yeah. And I know originally Peter Sellers was cast in the Ray Walston mm-hmm. bar. Um and had a heart it, attack, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 Wilder supposedly said you need a heart to have a heart attack when you heard <laughs> that. <laughs> Wilder. Uh but yeah, every you if you want to see someone that had that every director has had difficulty with, look up Peter it's Sellers. Peter Sellers. <laughs> yeah. But I do think in some ways, I don't really want to I think that Sellers would have tilted it in maybe a a strange direction that could have worked, but I do think it's, I really like Ray Walston in it, but in some ways, yeah, Yeah. maybe that sort of so through people too, because he is playing it straight funny, but straight, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think totally people, it feels like people probably totally what else was going on like this in 1964, maybe Lolita would be the closest, but Yeah. uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Wilder was always kind of ahead of the curve because, you know, major and the minor is a little Lolita-ish. And then, yeah. yeah, and Lolita, of course, had Peter Sellers as such a good quilty in that crazy movie. But yeah, I think it's also like the tone is hard to get right because Dean Martin, who is so funny and wilder had just so much love for him said he was like the funniest man in hollywood or there's a quote like that and i think he's so charming he's playing self-parody like before jerry lewis had kind of done it a little bit too speaking of martin and lewis they both had done it a bit but i think he's perfect here ray Walston is playing it straight so it's almost like people are in a different type of movie but they're in the same film kim novak came out of retirement after a couple years Uh, To make this film, she kind of feels like he says he didn't give her notes to play it like Marilyn, but she still kind of gives off a Marilyn energy. So it's a little bit like everybody is sort of going to their own drum. I think it works well together but I wonder if when you were watching this in 64 and there wasn't a lot like it, I mean, there were, you know, sex comedies, but the sex comedies of course were like sexless sex comedies yes. and yes. this is not sexless. So that's yeah. right.
1: it was all about the cheese in that era yeah. so of it, and sort of pretending and separate beds, but like wink, wink, <laughs> yes. and just sort of a more, um, you know, or, or like if they were going to be subversive, they were going to be Frank Tashlin subversive where like, you would really, that's have, a to good know, really yeah. have to really have to go. But this is so. I mean, Dean Martin, like, really one of a really bravura performance. He's yeah. so, he's so. What one would say is unlikely. He so does not care about being the no. creep and the, lech and the you know, and it's just like a send up of his persona, not the real him. But he has no fear about it it's just spectacular and and i think uh, like i think yeah the sort of asynchronicity in some ways of the performance is sort of the point you know um Mm -hmm. they're all operating in such different worlds you know walston is a fairly bourgeois traditional Mm -hmm. uh, he's sort of a a romantic striver you know he wants to be a songwriter and and dean martin's character is you know really hollywood sleaze and uh, uh and and Kim Novak is like so many of Billy Wilder's sort of um like Brian
0: um, Kubelick kind of, yeah.
1: Yes, and and then even the full range to 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 the lot of he's very sympathetic sex worker history of writing yes. sex workers or pseudo-sex workers or you know, maybe you know, uh, Irma Ermal or um it's yes. yeah, just um You know, what what they would call Hooker with the Heart of Gold, or, uh, and we wouldn't call it any of that now. And he doesn't see her that way, I think, but Mm -hmm. it's just a very humane and funny and warm performance. And I think, um, I think actually Monroe would be probably wrong in this part because it would be a little. Too, too much yeah it's yeah. sort of like you know it's which is why she's so perfect for some like it hot but here she has to be a little you know has it has to be a lighter thing and mm-hmm. and, and um i don't know if monroe i mean I'm she sure would she, have
0: maybe put too much i don't know gusto for lack of a better word in the sexiness yeah, and i think, and I think yeah.
1: really working with she's so great at working with her with other actors in a way mm-hmm. that monroe isn't all, all, modulating
0: and, more yeah
1: yeah so it's just <laughs> and it's just filthy from beginning to end and and you just every time i watch it i catch more little jokes i mean there's the obvious ones like climax or poly i Kistel, know
0: right? yes <laughs> <And> go <laughs> shoot it out with her in the trailer which is i mean yeah. how did they get away with some of it it's it's
1: great it's so yeah. great and i know Wilder always said he couldn't understand what the outrage was about because mm. he thought it was Quite romantic, and I really do. As someone, you know, Wilder at that point was several years into what would prove to be a very long marriage, and I think he had, you know, uh, I think he thought in some ways this was um, a love song to to marriage being a flexible uh, yeah. institution that could allow for indiscretion and um, mm-hmm. personal ambitions that go out of control or bad bad weekends or whatever
0: Yeah. And, you know, also just having your heart in the right place. Exactly. Which is, I mean, trusting and also just what you're willing to do for somebody. And I also enjoy the idea of the end. I'm not going to spoil the ending, but the turn of events with the wife and how it kind of plays into the beginning when you find out she was in the fan club but then she's not, you know, a groupy type of person. And I just like her arc as well. Like even a a minor character in the movie. Um, Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of complexity, a lot of humane attitudes toward all of his characters. And I think Dean Martin, it's also really cool that this came in 64 because uh, I had Karina Longworth on the podcast last fall when she was doing her, um, you know, um, oh, the, Dean, yeah. yeah, Sammy and Dean season, and we talked about Dean Martin and the late 50s and how that was when he was still really trying to do, like, through Rio Bravo and the Young Lions, like, real, you know, strong performances, and then he kind of checked out and did the rat pack thing for a little bit, and he's leaning into the rat pack thing here but it kind of also shows his chops and takes you back to that late 50s era
1: yeah because it also reminds me a little bit of his performance is really maybe his best and some came running which is yes uh, we
0: talked about that know, too which
1: is yeah. like this, this sort of really sort of you know there's like the darkness hovering beneath him and here he yeah. uses the comic effect like that this guy is this guy is not a good guy and no. he that you know and there's like it's just hovering there but it it's never going to go too far in this kind it goes just the right places in this but it felt like so, you know like he was really able to tap into in a way that that I think um I wish he'd had more opportunity to explore because it's just um I mean I always think of that Nick 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 Tosh's biography of uh, Dino of Dean Martin yeah. and that's so much about his complexity and I think Wilder really makes good use of it here um mm-hmm. you know he, it okay he you know it's you know we don't have his interior life and we wouldn't want it but what we do have is you just kept having these sort of glimmers of it and uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah like some really, of his
0: vanity in the yes, scene where yes, he's going to go yes. to bed and he, he keeps singing the line like as she mentions different singers because he's a little threatened I love yeah, that yeah. so much
1: yeah. 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 yeah he's so great at puncturing male ego is, is another yes. in all of these and I think um there's something so in, in, in endearing about that yeah. And one of the things I always think is um Jack Lemon's wife Felicia Farr right plays the wife yes. yeah I often think of Jack Lemon in the lead and I don't think that would work either but he does find with Lemon a way to to get away with a lot of stuff because Lemon never feels mm-hmm. like dirty <laughs> so no
0: and you know you read more about Lemon, and um you know maybe there were affairs, you know, there, like in the Bogdanovich book, they, it does kind of clue you in that there was stuff going on with Lemon that you would never think. And so, you know, it is interesting with Wilder. He did kind of um, enjoy the Lemon persona and what he was able to do with it. But yeah, I think everyone is great here. Felicia Farr is so good. They're they're all really good. I know um, with Wilder, of course, there are so many bonafide classics and other underrated favorites that I've seen fans champion over the years. Speaking of Lemon, one I like that not a lot of people do is Avanti. I thought that one was kind of yes. fun. Yes. But are there any others you'd love to recommend people check out before we go? Well,
1: there's one that... Um... I mean, I consider it a classic, so I didn't even consider it for the, I mean, I consider it a movie everyone loves, so I didn't consider it for this, but several people, unless you're a film noir person, Ace in the Hole is not a you might oh, not.
0: Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And so,
1: I mean, underrated, I think, yeah, in the general cinema population, it probably mm-hmm. is because it's an incredible movie. And, and among film noir people, it's like Pantheon. So I yeah. had, a of time, but, but everybody should see Ace in the Hole because it, it's incredible. And, um and, you know, it is more, it is sort of leaning into his cynical side. Mm-hmm. Um, but. There's some staggeringly great performances in that, yes. and it's a really still prescient view of media and spectacle and, and our our hunger for shit public shaming and humiliation yeah. and um, and um, rubbernecking and yeah, it's just really a fascinating view of um, um, media spectacle that sort of never really goes away. So I think that would be one. I like Avanti too. I mean, I'll watch them all. Yes. I, I, I find Fedora fascinating. It doesn't work really as a full movie, but there's always something in Wilder. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're never going to go away from it feeling um, cheated. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of his earliest five graves in Cairo, I I saw, that's really- That's
0: the one I have not seen. I really need to.
1: Yeah, I saw in the theater. I I forget who showed it. Maybe it was Film Forum here in New York, but, um, you know, he, he doesn't have the, in that case, and maybe he didn't have the uh pull to get the casting to make it sing, but you see all once you start watching him, you see him in all of them, and you you know, and they become richer for it. So, okay. um, I think it's a it's it's also really fun. And I love Irma LaDuce and 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 um, you know, that's a really great return pairing of Lemon and McLean. have
0: that, you know, yeah yeah
1: <laughs> so, I, yeah. I think you can't go wrong but these are real treasures I think the ones we talked about today so they are
0: know. yeah yeah so many good ones I know I have that old box set from MGM of you know and it's got fortune cookie and apartment they're all just marvelous films I really do need to check out uh five graves in Cairo is that the yes. okay yeah and so I'm hoping anyone listening is going to Put some of these back in streaming or think about releasing these again, because yeah, I mean, apartment is wonderful. Some like it hot is wonderful, but he had a a wider ranging career and they're all
1: really valuable. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And these ones that, you know, those thirties ones he wrote with bracket that he didn't direct or, you know, midnight is another one. I mean, these are, you know, just spectacular romantic comedies, screwball comedies, uh, mm-hmm. sex comedies. Um, you know, you just, they're just delicious. And when, whenever he had his hand in a, in a script, it just, he just made it better. So I think especially, you know, Uh, uh, not all my favorite directors were writers too. And maybe that's why Wilder is sort of always sort of inches to the top because the script matters most to him. And these Mm -hmm. are just sort of beautifully composed stories that just all land in the right place and all feel like Wilder.
0: A a good last question for you then, because it sounds like you were quoting from a script earlier. As far as reading these scripts on the page, do you have like a favorite that you think people should complete i mean obviously you would recommend several but is there one that really impressed you as a screenwriter
1: well i I'm, uh, I am mean, they all read, like, you can't believe how good yeah. they read when you read them, because uh, you know, sometimes older Hollywood scripts, you know, you're really just seeing the shooting script behind, uh, uh-huh. and, um, and so they often have a lot of the personality taken out, uh, yes. but these don't, they could just, uh, but I mean, I have a soft spot for Double Indemnity, I mean, mm-hmm. personally, I uh, love Chandler, and, and oh, I'm they had a the very competitive yeah. co-working relationship, but yes. it, it's one of the best scripts of all time, and uh, and it's just like, it sings off the page and it's so, you know, it's sort of famous as being a film noir and it is, and it's, but it's so funny it and it is. it has one of the greatest male, male relationships in all of cinema, which is Edward T. Robinson and Fred McMurray uh, as the, um, as the claims investigator and the insurance salesman. And uh, it's just an endlessly rich script and um, just seeing the way that they talk around things they're not talking yeah. about and how um sexually charged it is that like, i uh, wonder if you wonder yes exactly yes. exactly and you know and i love the kane novel uh, beyond measure but that's not that dialogue it's not i mean kane is that's not his thing that's not what mm-hmm. he does and they had knew they had to figure out a way to get across what comes across in the first person narration in the book they had to find a way to get that and that yeah. movement and energy, and it's it's just in these Stanwick and Fred McMurray scenes. It's just on fire. So it's uh, yeah. If anyone wants to read one on the page, that would be the one I'd recommend.
0: Very cool. Well, Megan, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It was a real treat. I always learn so much when I talk to you, and you have impeccable taste. It's always just such a fun way to spend an afternoon. So save I to, and Save.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you so much. And next, Paul Schrader.
0: (laughs) Paul Schrader is next. Absolutely. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and Filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.